We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. After the presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio was assassinated in Ecuador on Wednesday night, one of the members of his campaign spoke to the New York Times with a quivering voice, they reported. And he said this, he said, the mafias are too powerful. They have taken over our country. They have taken over the economic system, the police, the judicial system. We are desperate, he continued. We don't know our country's future in which hands or by whom it will be taken over. A situation that is not what it's supposed to be in terms of the power of drug cartels in Central America and how that had an impact even this week. Many years ago, I was speaking with an older woman in uh, Egypt, and she has done a tremendous amount of work with poor children, children in great need, building over 65 different ministry centers throughout Egypt. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize about 20 years ago, and she recounted to me how difficult it was to work and live within that Muslim nation. She said, it's just a matter of a, mo- a brief moment, and we are out of our facilities, to u- to th- th- which we use to serve these children. She said it would just take the government one administrative error, and we could lose our facility in an instant. And often it was so difficult compared to other people in, in the nation for her to get facilities for her work. Again, not the way it's supposed to be maybe more trivially, but perhaps a little bit more closer to home. Uh, Again, several years ago, Mandy and I had some friends who were selling their house, and it got to the day of closing, and the buyer backed out. And not only did they back out, but they said they weren't going to give their deposit. And not only did they say they weren't going to give their deposit, but they said they were going to bring an attorney to pursue damages for how the the case had been handled, the, the, the sale had been handled. Now, our friends had loved Jesus, had done nothing wrong. They had tried to walk with integrity and character through the process. And as they were recounting this to Mandy and me, they asked the question, where is God in all of this? They were counting on that money to make a cross-country move and to put a deposit on a new place to live in a new state far away, and they were left out in the cold. The fact of the matter is, is our world is full of so many situations that are not the way they are supposed to be, that cause us questions, that, that raise questions and cause consternation in our hearts and our souls about how are we supposed to interact with the world like this? And how do we maintain our faith? Maybe it's something even just somebody at work who is clearly pursuing their own ends, looking out for themselves and cutting corners, but getting the promotions when you're not. Or maybe it's the other teenagers in your high school that seem to be the ones that everybody loves and likes, even though they pursue a pathway of life that leaves a wake of destruction behind them while you're trying to live seemingly a godly life in the midst of a very broken world. All kinds of these, these situations are around us, and it may well be that many of you are living in situations like this even now in your life. You maybe walked in this morning and are thinking, you know, the world is just upside down right now, and it's not the way it's supposed to be, and I'm on the short end of the stick. And these situations deeply challenge our faith. And so in light of that challenge, I want us to look at Psalm 94 this morning together. And I invite you to open the Bible up with me to Psalm 94. 
Because the psalmist in Psalm 94 is in a similar situation where things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Look at verse 20. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Or look back in verse 5 and 6. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. The fact of the matter is the psalmist is in a situation where the wicked are ruling, and they're pursuing policies of criminal or social or economic oppression, which lead the righteous and the vulnerable to suffer. Now let me clarify, and I've done this before, but it's important when we start talking about the wicked and the righteous, what we are talking about and what we're not talking about. We're not talking about the sinful and the sinless. In that case, there would be no one in the category of the righteous, biblically speaking. But there is a distinction made between those who reject the creational order and wisdom and uh, boundaries that God has put in his world, or who reject even their covenant king. Because in this case, we think these are insiders as we'll see their taunt in verse 7 is directly toward the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. They've rejected the, the constraints, the guidelines, the direction of creation and covenant and have said, we are going out on our own. We are going to be autonomous, self-determined. In fact, all of you faithful people of there, you're missing the point. This is the way the world really works and we're going to pursue it to our heart's content. That's what is under the category of the wicked the autonomous and self-determined who've rejected any sense of authority or accountability to their maker and redeemer. On the flip side, we have the righteous, biblically speaking. And the righteous, again, are not sinless, or no one would be in that category. They are those who are yielded to and accountable to their creator and redeemer. Those who, despite walking in their own path at times, will come back through God's provided means of repentance and receiving forgiveness and being restored, who are seeking to live under their covenant king and walk with him in right relationship. In this case, the psalmist is in a situation where the wicked are ruling and prospering. And how does the psalmist respond in faith? And this is what I want to encourage us with today as we think about our own situations where the world isn't what it should be and our lives aren't what they should be. And it causes us to question. My question is, how do we take situations like this and let them become means by which our faith is exercised and deepened and strengthened rather the cause for our faith being deteriorated or even let go of? So we'll see the psalmist do three things. The first, in verses 1 to 3, is he cries out to God for God to reestablish order. Starting at the beginning, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? And then he continues, lament often has this structure of petition followed by complaint. And we get petition in verses 1 and 2 and complaint in verses 3 through 7. Essentially, this is a cry saying, God, this is not the way your world is supposed to be. This is not the way your people are supposed to be. These people are evil and they're destroying people that you want to bless. We saw last week that the good king cares for the, the, the vulnerable and the marginalized. 
They exercise justice and righteousness. Well, in this case, these leaders are doing just the opposite. They're throwing those vulnerable people to the slaughter and profiting from their loss. And so the psalmist is crying out to God, God, would you put things back in order in this world? Would you set things right? Don't let this go unchecked. And the psalmist is using a poignant, heartfelt language. God, how long? How long will the drug cartels wreak havoc throughout nations in Central America? How long will people keep others in bondage in the industry of human trafficking, which affects millions and millions of people in our world? Lord, how long will these things persist? How long will the greed of Wall Street continue to have, wreak havoc on this nation in, in certain ways? How long will these things persist? And the psalmist is appealing to God as the one who is the God of order and justice and mercy and saying, I want you to restore these conditions for flourishing that are your very heart. Would you be aroused? Would you awake? Would you be awakened, O oh God? And, and we often get uncomfortable with language that's this strong and demanding of God. It's not typically the way we've been instructed to pray, but the scriptures and the Psalms in particular, they don't hold back. This is faith being exercised in a situation of dissonance and disorientation. Lord, would you act? My hope is in you. I'm invested in you. I affirm your promises. That's what's underneath these, these words in verses 1 to 3. And when the psalmist cries out for God to act, there's a couple things going on that we need to see before we move to the second point. One is the psalmist is restraining himself from taking revenge himself. To cry out to God to intervene in the lives of those who are wreaking havoc on, on the vulnerable around him and even on himself is actually to say, God, this is your this is your domain. This is your realm. Repaying to the wicked, repaying to the proud, bringing vengeance, giving people their just desserts. That's, that's your job. And in crying out to God to do that, the psalmist is actually refraining from the temptation that every one of us face, which is to fight fire with fire. Well, let me just jump in. Repay evil with evil. When Paul actually in Romans 12 is exhorting uh, New Testament Christians he actually quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, which refers to God as the Lord of vengeance or God of vengeance. And he says this, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul exhorts these New Testament Christians, do not repay evil with evil. But if your enemy is hungry, give him something to drink, to eat. If he is thirsty, give him, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, remember, but overcome evil with good. Paul is reminding New Testament believers that the God who they worship is the God of vengeance and that it's his to bring revenge, not ours. And the psalmist here, when he's crying out to God in this way, is, is sharing in a similar insight, refraining from the temptation to jump in, to do things that would be against his covenant king's demands and desires, and asking God to be the one to intervene. Also, asking for God to intervene, while well, it's a, a removal of ourselves from that place we often want to put ourselves this is a yearning for the world to be right. It is very different than an impulse for bloodthirsty revenge. The psalmist is asking God to do what God has promised. To make the circumstances of the world and of his life and of our lives reflect God's gracious and benevolent rule. We all want a world of justice and peace. We long for a world of shalom where the vulnerable and the poor and the, uh, the marginalized are protected 
where the faithful are cared for. And at the same time, it's easy for all of us to reject any notion of judgment. In our culture, judgment is kind of something you don't talk about. Vengeance, it seems just kind of awful, very Old Testament of us to say these things. But the reality is that you can't long for a world of peace without affirming the role of judgment. Judgment is God's, and that judgment will be the means by which God actually exercises his right to expunge his world of those entities that are doing violence to his world and destroying God's vision for peace. It is the means by which God will deal with this world and set it right. Now, when God does initially act in a climactic act of judgment, what does he do? He brings that judgment down upon himself and the person of his son at the cross of Calvary. At the heart of our Christian faith and gospel is the reality that the God of judgment has brought that judgment upon himself in order that there might be a span, a period of tremendous mercy and compassion, of long-suffering love. We read in the New Testament that God is slow to bring about that final day because he longs for people to come to repentance. The very people that are the wicked, exploiting others, the vulnerable, and so on. God has sent his son into the world in order to open a pathway for even them, even us, to come under his mercy and grace. And yet, if we read our Bible clearly and correctly, there is a day coming when that moment and time of mercy and patient love will come to an end and Jesus will return and there will be, in fact, an accounting and a reckoning and God's justice will be infused into a world of brokenness and violence. And those who have resisted his benevolent rule will be dealt with and judge, and things will in fact be put right. And Jesus affirms this as he speaks to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and we read about this near the end of the book of Revelation as well. And that day is coming. And it's important for us even to remember that in our own lives, that that day is coming when all of us will give an account for the life that we have lived. So the first thing the psalmist does is he cries out for God to reestablish the conditions of flourishing and peace, to bring justice, to repay to the proud what they deserve. Second, verses 8 through 11, the psalmist exposes the folly of the wicked. I I really want you all to hear this point because I, I think it's very important to hear. But look at what they say in verse 7. This is their taunt. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And then the psalmist continues, understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Of course he sees. He sees with utter clarity. Every heart is transparent before him. Every situation occurs under his watchful gaze. The author of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
And the psalmist recognizes that what matters most is not what the world says about one, about you or me. It doesn't actually matter. But it's what God sees and declares. And he comes to basically taunt here the foolish to say, don't you get it? Don't you get that your life of trying to get ahead by the means and standards and ways of the world just isn't going to lead you to anywhere fruitful? It may in the moment, in the temporary time, but in the end, God's justice will prevail. God's standards and order will prevail. God will uphold the order of his world. And it's actually when he gets to the end of the psalm, if you'll notice the confidence with which he speaks in verse 23, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. I say I want us to hear this because this is a psalm that is recited by the people of God. Though he is addressing the foolish, he's actually really addressing the covenant people of God. They're the ones who will recite the psalm as we continue to recite it and read it over and over and over again. And what's going on here is the exposure of the precarious position of the wicked is being directed to the righteous in order to strengthen their resolve to faithfulness in the present day so that they do not defect to the side of the wicked. A psalm that makes this point perhaps even more clearly than Psalm 94 is Psalm 73, a psalm in which the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And the psalmist says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 13 of Psalm 72, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And here's what's going on. The temptation always, when we encounter situations of dissonance and disorientation, when we are perhaps victims of an unjust world or those that we love or those that we see or who have no defense for themselves are being mistreated, the temptation is always to come to this point of saying, well, I guess I'll just jump out. I guess I'll just give up. I guess it's just too much, this whole godliness thing. I think I'll just join with the wicked. Eat, drink, and be merry. And let go of the ways of the covenant king that I know loves me deeply. And so the second, the second strategy of the psalmist in this situation is to expose the folly of that position, to deter himself and others who would read from defecting from the righteous to the wicked. From stepping out of a path of faithfulness and fidelity, not sinlessness, but a path of covenant faithfulness and joining this other side. We are told to expect trouble in this world. Jesus says, in this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And we desperately need to see, especially when we are struggling with why things are the way they are in our lives, when they don't seem to be lining up with God's heart and intent for us, with God's purposes for the world, we need to come to recognize that those who are on the side of the wicked, those who have rejected their creator and their, their redeemer's ways of living are in a precarious position and see through to the end. In Psalm 73, the turning point in that psalm is when the psalmist says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. There was no flourishing there. There was no... Uh, substance there. The end was merely loss, decay, judgment. So the psalmist exposes the lie of the path of the wicked. Perhaps some of you are here this morning, it's almost afternoon, and you're being tempted right now in your life. 
like the young man in Proverbs 1, when these youth come to him and say, come throw your lot in with us, and we'll find all kinds of treasures and rewards. And the Proverbs says, but they do not realize that they're essentially sowing the seeds of their own downfall, that they're digging a pit for themselves. Maybe you're tempted. Maybe some of you have already opened that door and you're, you're going down that path. And I hope in some ways this psalm can be a reminder to you of the folly of stepping off the path of God's grace in life and onto the path of human pride and rebellion and sin. It never, ever, ever pays. It never delivers. Its end is destruction. And let this psalm be a warning to you to come back home. And the third thing the psalmist does is he reaffirms the blessedness of those who are on the side of God. And I might rephrase that and say he reaffirms the blessedness of those for whom God is on their side. Verse 12, which is the heart of the psalm, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. By the way, that pit's usually dug by the wicked themselves. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. And then after these, three, these four verses, the psalmist gives a testimony of God's fidelity in his own life. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And then verse 22, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. What the psalmist is saying is that God is worth everything in life. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. That's the same blessedness that comes in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. We get it again here. Whom you discipline or chastise, O Lord. We don't tend to think of that as a blessing. You know, we don't like to be under discipline in our lives. But as Hebrews 12 recounts and as Proverbs 3 recounts and as Job's friend Eliphaz and Job 5 recounts, the one who receives the discipline of the Lord is indeed blessed because it's a reminder that he is in fact your father who loves you. And actually the psalmist gives us a little bit of a glimpse into potentially how to see sometimes situations which, in which the world does feel upside down and not, not to see them as, as a moment of God forsaking us, but rather as a moment of God chastising and deepening us so to loosen our grip perhaps on the things of this world that our grip upon him and his treasure and reward might deepen. Blessed is the one, the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. To have him is to have rest. To belong to him is to belong to the, 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 the way the world was meant to be. And that world will indeed come one day. This is what it means to be blessed. Not to be winning or prevailing or conquering according to the standards of the world, as our culture would tell us is the way of blessing. No, the psalmist paints a very different picture of the way of blessing. It is to belong to Yahweh, the covenant king, to belong to his family, to receive 
his discipline. This is everything. And one could have all of the prosperity and advancement of the wicked as they have it in this psalm, but have not have God and you will have nothing. And conversely, one could have all of the hardship, sorrow, and difficulty that this world has to offer, but have God in his son Jesus and have everything. And Jesus sees this in his own temptations with the devil in the wilderness. Remember, the devil says, hey, if you'll bow down and worship me, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can have everything. And Jesus quotes scripture back and says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then later in this turning point in his ministry in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples and to all of us, what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? God is everything. Everything. And the psalmist is reaffirming that in this psalm, saying he is worth it. Hold close to him. Hang on to him even when the circumstances are deeply challenging and difficult. I want to bring this to a close with a biblical story that most of you know well that illustrates something of the value of God that the psalmist is communicating to us here. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a favorite kid's story, but one that has so much to teach us. As the king has said that you must bow down to his idol, and they realize, look, it's either certain death or fidelity to, this, to our covenant king. This is what they say to the king in these well-known words. If this be so... If you're going to throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, he can, but if not, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to step away because he is our everything. And we know that story. God did miraculously deliver them with a fourth man in the furnace there with them, giving them comfort and aid and shielding them from the fires and the, the, the flames. I cannot stand here and promise to you that God will shield you from the fiery furnace that you may be walking in right now. He did not shield John the Baptist. His life ended in an unjust beheading as a party favor. But what I can assure you of through this word and what the psalm assures us of is that God's way will prevail. And God will indeed bring vindication to his people. And in fact, our deep Christian hope is that even after our bodies are decaying in the ground, that God will one day breathe life into the lifeless dust as he did in the beginning and give us new life, resurrection life, in him. Our hope as Christians, our hope is a hope beyond the grave. It's a hope for God to make things right when that day will come in the future. And we don't know what the outcome of our circumstances in this present will be. But what we do know is whatever those circumstances are, and this is where the psalmist affirms this as his third point, it is to be on the side of the blessed. Whatever the circumstances are, go back to verse 14, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. 
We've called the series the Psalms of Jesus. Every psalm is a psalm of Jesus. This psalm reflects, Jesus reflects the way of the faithful one. He is the great unjust sufferer of all of history, the one who suffered most unjustly because he had no sin. And you might remember in the garden of, of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. He was resisting the temptation to step out, to forsake and take an easier path. Instead, he was saying, I want to remain in your will under your kingship and lordship. Father, I am with you. And even on the cross, he cries out in lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22, verse 1. But he also cries out in deep trust and faith, affirming that it is good to be on the side of the Father when he says, into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. And he rests in that. And for those three days, the disciples had no hope other than in the mighty power, resurrection power of God. And God did prevail. Whatever you're walking through in life, however upside down it may seem, let the psalmist's instructions be helpful that these circumstances might become the means by which your faith is deepened and exercised. Cry out to God to intervene. He wants to hear your honest cry. Expose the lie that somehow stepping out from under God's care and protection would bring blessing. And be reaffirmed that to belong to him, and you do if you are in Christ, without any doubt, to belong to him is the great and only real blessing of life. He is life. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your love expressed in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this era of patient, long-suffering on your behalf that we might come to repentance. Help us to grow in that even more today. And Lord, we do cry out to you as your people and pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would liberate those who are being exploited, taken advantage of, and even killed unjustly. And grant us the grace, Lord, to walk with you in a world that often doesn't make sense. Bolster our faith, this this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.